Insecure, a security podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Global Security Challenges. See it, say it, secure it. I am Marine Guéguin, a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds. And I'm Dr. Harry Swinhoe, an early career researcher at the University of Leeds. Together, we will be discussing security in an increasingly insecure world. This podcast aims at bringing together postgraduate researchers, early career researchers and more established academics to discuss their research and explore the six core themes of the Centre for Global Security Challenges. As both Maureen and I engage in research within the field of terrorism studies, we thought that we would take the opportunity that this episode provides to introduce ourselves to podcast listeners and to talk a little bit more about our own research. Dr. Harrison Swinhoe is an early career researcher at the University of Leeds. His PhD thesis explored how the Islamic State's strategic narratives of sovereignty and political legitimacy were constructed through the English language propaganda content produced by the group between 2014 and 2017. In so doing, his thesis analyzed the range of discourses constructed by the Islamic State and the relationship between these discourses and the group's strategic narrative of sovereignty and political legitimacy. His thesis was supervised by Professor Jack Holland and Dr. Gordon Club. Dr. Swinhoe has also published an article in Critical Studies on Terrorism entitled They Are Not Muslim, They Are Monsters, The Accidental Takfirism of British Political Elites, which explored discursive practices utilized by British political elites to police the boundaries of religion and the potential implication and risks of these discursive practices. You can also find him on Twitter and the link would be on the description of this episode and on his police and CGSC profile. Marine Gagan is a postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds. Her thesis focuses on French counterterrorism strategy and specifically a critique of the crystallization and or normalization of emergency powers, looking at securitization and a critique of the securitization framework, the construction of the terrorist identity in a French context, and the application of emergency powers through a decolonial perspective. Her thesis is supervised by Professor Edward Newman and Dr. Gordon Club. Marine previously worked as a research assistant for the Interparliamentary Union, the IPU, working on the third Global Parliament report released in April 2022. Marine Gagan has continued to work with the Interparliamentary Union, engaging in research on Tunisia and newly democratised regimes, the IPU's Global Parliamentary Report, which was published recently. She also co-authored an article with Frank Foyner, based on research undertaken for the Global Parliamentary Report, entitled Building Public Engagement in Small Island Nations, which will be published in a special issue of the Journal of Legislative Studies. Marine has also written a book chapter entitled Are French Counterterrorism Strategies a Colonial Legacy? What Remains from the Colonial Matrix When Constructing and Responding to the Threat of Terrorism? For a forthcoming edited book by Professor Tahir Abbas, Dr. Sagnik Dutta and Dr. Sylvia Berg. As Marine said, earlier her Twitter will be on the description of this episode and you can also find out more about her and her research on her Polis and CGSC profiles. Previously, Harry and I set up the Terrorvision film series with sponsorship from the CGSC, which looked at both specific events and broader debates within terrorism studies through the representation in film. 
So this podcast is our latest project on behalf of the CGSC and explores the center's broader research interests. So to start off with, Maureen, can you tell me a little bit more about your thesis now that you're coming to the end of the thesis writing process? Yeah, sure. What I do in, within the thesis, well, it's actually a good question. So I first and foremost analyzed political discourse from January 2015 to October 2017 in the context of terrorism and in relation with the threat framing, the construction of the existential threat and the application of emergency powers in France. Essentially, I provide a critique of the securitization framework taught by the Copenhagen School by looking at the a broader context of terrorism in France and drawing on post-Copenhagen school. So empirically, it means analyzing political discourse post Charlie Hebdo in January and post Paris attack in November 2017, and then the following attacks, which also correspond to an extension of emergency power. So the argument here and within the thesis is to examine how the threat evolved in political language from an existential unprecedented threat calling for a long war on terror, to a long, enduring and long-lasting threat legitimizing the extension of emergency power. What I demonstrate or try to demonstrate in the thesis is the impossibility to desecretize with such a constructed terrorist threat, and especially looking at such a crystallization of emergency power. Indeed, emergency power in France, or the so-called état d'urgence, have been applied for two years, and then it was normalized and then introduced into ordinary law. So additionally, the analysis of emergency power brought me to investigate its origin and past application, as my main argument is the threat is evolving following a continuum rather than a temporal discontinuity in its application. And I rather look at this from and following a continuum, a lineage, and it brought me to the Algerian war the Kanaki independence and the riot in Quartier Populaire in 2005. So I analyzed the threat framing from a decolonial perspective combined with a critical orientalist lens. Maybe as a little parenthesis, I will say I also attended one day of the Paris attack trial in November 2021 during the hearing of the former uh, President Hollande. Maybe as you know, or maybe you don't know, but past Paris attack, they decided to, of course, organize a trial following this attack, which is potentially the most important trial in Europe in terms of terrorism. Ah, great. Thank you for that. That's a really good overview. I was just wondering, could you potentially tell us a little bit more about your research on counterterrorism powers in France, the role of emergency powers, and specifically drawing out this link that you're making with the Algerian War of Independence uh, and that sort of genealogical lineage? Yes, so more specifically, I can say that one chapter of my thesis is dedicated to this uh, delineation of the terrorist other in the thesis, drawing on the post-structuralism, a critique of the orientalization and constructivism through a decolonial approach. So, for instance, my book chapter that is forthcoming uh, will also reflect on that. So basically, I examine the depiction, the construction, and the and the securitization of the terrorist other within political discourse, post-Charlie Hebdo attacks and post-Paris attacks by decision maker. And it's showcasing a colonial legacy and lineage of this orientalist construction of the terrorist other, as well as the French Muslim. 
So the West reproduces and shapes representation, recreate binaries purposively and implying the superiority of the West through discourse by depoliticizing, dehumanizing and depersonalizing the terrorist enemy other. Indeed, the narrative of Islamic terrorism is deeply entrenched in discursive construction of Western society and is nowadays an illustration of contemporary form of imperialism. So the use of representational politics has devastating consequences of an impact for the Muslim community fraught with Islamophobia, racial and orientalist assumption by the Western hegemonic power. So moreover, within the French counterterrorism approach, the orientalist construction of the terrorist enemy and coloniality of counterterrorism power produced an, an internal racial other. Not only does it depict a terrorist other from an orientalist standpoint, but it also leads to reproduce an internal racial other, racializing, stigmatizing, profiling the Muslim community, and reinforcing what was labeled the suspect community. So the argument I'm trying to make and to demonstrate is that political discourse constructs the terrorist identity, the threat of terrorism, excavating a colonial legacy and colonial structures, powers, and forms that are embedded in contemporary counterterrorism strategy in France. So not only is that limited to the constructed, securitized other, but also underlined the impossibility to desecuritize the threat of terrorism, as emergency power excavates also racial politics and stigmatization, as I said earlier. The political structure and language extending emergency power and more specifically targets the French Muslim community, depicted as the suspect community, and are actually the one experiencing counterterrorism policies in the first place. So maybe to wrap up my answer in a more <laughs> concise way, the law of 1955 was created within the context of the Algerian war, following a series of a terrorist attacks by the Front de Libération Nationale Algérien in November 1954, and gave birth to what is called the Régime d'État d'urgence, Empirically and reflecting upon historical settings of those emergency powers, the French decision maker declared the state of emergency for four examples, as I said, and it culminated to eight declaration of emergency powers since the promulgation of this law in 1955. So that is during the Algerian war context and its creation, during the revolt against colonial power in France, Outre-mer territory, that is Kanaki, Wallis, Futuna, and the Polynesian archipel, so Les Îles du Vent, and during the riots in the Quartier Populaire in 2005, and the last for the case of Islamic terrorism post-Paris attacks. So the similarity Algerian war post-Paris uh, attacks are quite significant. And this is one of the reasons I undertook this analysis from a decolonial perspective to understand how embedded colonial legacies are in the com contemporary fight against uh, terrorism and actually have been normalized into ordinary law in 2017. So the état d'urgence reveals the colonial continuum, the use of colonial powers, continuously applied as a colonial survival measures, its contemporary persistence, racializing and securitizing spaces and bodies. Uh, Harry, actually, can you tell me more about your thesis now that we've spoken a lot about mine? I know you are now a doctor, but yeah, Harry, can you tell me more about your thesis in general? Yeah, I can. So... As you say, I finished my PhD in September, so a while since I've discussed my thesis. But yeah, I can discuss it briefly. The broad aim of the thesis was to explore how the Islamic State constructed its strategic narratives of sovereignty and political legitimacy 
through the propaganda content it produced and the representation of its social practices, particularly acts of violence in this propaganda. And overall, the argument of the thesis was that these strategic narratives represented the world as being engaged in a conflict between Hakimaya, that is the sovereignty of God, and Jahiliya, the rejection of this sovereignty, with the Islamic State represented as the sole political entity, the sole political authority and actor that was fighting to restore and enforce uh, the sovereignty of God, Hakimaya. This involved the identification and analysis of a number of key discourses produced by the Islamic State and the ways in which these discourses were both premised on and served to construct the group's discourses of sovereignty and political legitimacy. So the sort of reciprocal and mutual relationship between these discourses and these kind of broader strategic narratives. The thesis also explored the juxtaposition between what we might call Western or perhaps Westphalian understandings of sovereignty, in which sovereignty is vested within a specific political authority which governs a defined territory, and the Islamic State's construction of sovereignty as belonging solely to God, with the Islamic State as a political authority, acts on behalf of God but doesn't hold sovereignty in its own right, and the implications of this distinction and this difference. Okay, thanks, Harry. Actually, in terms of your thesis that you have done, I was wondering how did you examine the ISIS-constructed strategic narratives and propaganda? Was it easy in terms of accessibility to this propaganda? Obviously, whenever you're looking at propaganda content produced by terrorist groups and prohibited groups, there are potentially ethical and legal uh, implications around that that can pose challenges. And those are things that you have to work through when applying for ethical approval and so on. And so one thing that I was able to do through the University of Leeds was that the University of Leeds actually created a specific server that you could use to access sensitive materials. So not just this kind of material, but for other people doing other forms of research as well, that allowed the University of Leeds basically to monitor your activity and ensure that what you were doing was in accordance with the plans that you set out, uh, with the conditions of your ethical approval and so on. And so that allows or overcomes, you know, some of those legal and ethical uh, challenges. At the same time, I benefited greatly from uh, work that other people have done. So particularly uh, Aaron Zellen in the US has set up his incredible archive of jihadist material, jihadology.com, where you can find a lot of this material, including the English language material produced by the Islamic State and other jihadist groups. And relatively recently, as in over the last couple of years, that moved to a subscription model, not as in you had to pay for it, but that you had to set up a username and password that was linked to an official academic email address. And so it was filtered in that way to ensure that people were using it for academic purposes rather than for other purposes. And so the combination of the work that other people have done in terms of making this material accessible and then the logistical support provided by the University of Leeds helped overcome or mitigate some of those potential challenges. Thank you, Harry. Maybe that will help other researcher or potential PhD student if they want to undertake this type of research. Um, also, Harry, you published recently in 2021 a master's article in critical studies on terrorism. Personally, I found it very fascinating. 
So could you develop for our audience and detail a bit what you did in this article? So thank you for that, Maureen. I'm glad that you considered it a must-read article. I'm not sure how widely that sentiment is shared, but I'm glad that you feel that way. So yes, I published uh, this article in 2021 in Critical Studies on Terrorism called They Are Not Muslims, They Are Monsters, The Accidental Takfirism of British Political Elites. So just by way of introduction for people who are maybe not familiar with this topic or this discussion, so takfir refers to the practice of declaring that an individual is not or cannot be considered to be Muslim or a member of the Muslim community, regardless of their own self-profession of Islamic faith. This article was prompted by Mohammed Bidar, Masaki Nagata and Tiffany Twenney's analysis of the utilisation of takfir by radical Islamist groups, which referenced during the course of that article the way in which British political elites, specifically David Cameron, had engaged in discursive practices which, in the author's words, bore the imprint of takfir. So although it could be argued that these discursive practices, when utilised by non-Muslims, could not or should not be considered sort of properly takfirist, it should be noted that the concept of takfir itself is heavily disputed. Badara et al. argue that takfir is actually essentially prohibited in the Quran and in the Sunnah, and there's no agreement amongst those who engage in takfir over who can engage in this process or how, so whether you need to have a certain level of clerical authority or judicial knowledge or not in order to engage in this kind of process of takfir. Moreover, in a number of the cases that I look at in the article, when non-Muslims or politicians in non-Muslim majority countries are engaging in what I've called accidental takfirism, they're doing so by explicitly reproducing or referencing statements made by Muslim leaders. So in the case of one of the statements from David Cameron, uh, he was reproducing comments that had been made by the King of Jordan. So regardless of whether these practices constitute proper takfir or not, or instead bear the imprint of the concept of takfir, I argue in the article that they do have takfirist connotations and resonances, and the potential implications of those connotations and resonances should be considered. So what I found interesting was that these takfirist discursive practices were being used very much instrumentally by British political elites to represent members of Salafi jihadist groups as not being Muslims and indeed as being enemies of Islam, with Muslims being constructed as a group who need the state, in this case the British state, to both protect them from these non-Muslim terrorists and to police the boundaries of their own religion. In some ways, this could be considered an improvement from earlier discursive representations of the Muslim community, such as the good Muslim-bad Muslim dichotomy that has previously been explored by Mamdani and so on. And this construction of Salafi jihadists as non-Muslims does potentially have the benefit of not placing the same onus on Muslims or the Muslim community to prove that they have no link to terrorism. However, there are potentially concerning implications raised by these discursive practices, not only in terms of the way in which they resonate with the takfiris discursive practices of Salafi jihadists themselves, but perhaps more worryingly, and perhaps more probably, the way in which they legitimise the practices of authoritarian leaders in Muslim-majority countries who do engage 
in policing the boundaries of acceptable religion through tech various discursive practices. So one thing that I explored was a way in which both David Cameron and the MP Khalid Mahmood used various discursive practices, which were similar to those that had previously been used by Egyptian political authorities to clamp down on dissidents within Egypt. Also, as I noted earlier, it's very clear that these practices are often being used or always being used instrumentally. So with David Cameron, you see that on some occasions he explicitly states that members of the Islamic State are not Muslims, that they should not be considered Muslims. And then on other occasions, he states, we cannot ignore the fact that they, as in members of the Islamic State, are self-identifying Muslims. So there was a tendency to either use these discursive practices or not, depending on the audiences that politicians wanted to reach or the policies that they were seeking to enable and encourage at the time. So we should recognise that these discursive practices are being used to construct or advance and policy discourses rather than merely out of good intentions. Thank you. That's actually fascinating. And that's why I said it's a must-read article. I advise everyone to maybe have a read. Yeah, so I actually had a question for you following on from this. So what I was wondering was, given your research on counterterrorism discourses in France, how would you say that they differ from what you know of these kind of discourses in the United Kingdom, these kind of counterterrorism discourses? So... I don't know if I'm the right person to answer or if I have a clear answer to that. Uh, I can try. Uh, I can try to build on what I've read and what I read from your article and from other research undertaken by scholars. What struck me when I read your article, for instance, and from my own research on the French counterterrorism political discourses, this dichotomy of like good versus bad Muslim, as you mentioned earlier, is actually kind of emphasized way more in the French political discourse, I would say. So while they seek to protect Muslim in their discourse uh, post-terrorist attacks, it's still very much embedded in, in the way they target Muslim community in France with counterterrorism powers. So yeah, for instance, if you look at emergency power and their application, it targets Muslim community in France. So through house searches, through what they call residential arrestation, they target the Muslim community in France. They are the ones who are experiencing counterterrorism policies every day, on their everyday life. And the polls and surveys conducted by Human Rights Watch, for instance, or there was a new report that came up in 2021 or just recently that was published on how Islamophobia increased in France, but not only in public space, but specifically in political discourse. As I said, or I try to mention when I've done this comparison between Algerian war and the post-Paris attack, for instance, is you have similarities in the discourse, the way they uh, depict the terrorist other, how they rationalize the bodies of the Muslim, how do they emphasize this good versus bad Muslim dichotomy within their political discourse, how they even talk and When I say they, I mean political actors and decision makers. How do they frame Islamic terrorism? How they dehumanize the terrorist? How they depoliticize Islam, for instance, in the French discourse? I think that's where 
there is maybe a difference between UK counterterrorism political discourse and French counterterrorism political discourse. And this is something that I I thought about when I read your article, this type of differences in the discourses. I think Islamophobia and racial politics are way less disguised in French political discourse, I would say. For instance, post-Charlie Hebdo attacks in January 2015, they even mentioned that they wanted to, it's so-called the déchéance de nationalité, which means removing the French nationality to someone that has dual citizenship or dual nationality. They will remove the French nationality if they think there is a problem with that person. And by the way they frame and explain what it will be, this déchéance de nationalité was embedded in this, first of all, colonial legacy, because this is something that happened during the, the Algerian war as well. So I think that's where we can find like the differences within the UK political discourse in the French one. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. I think it's potentially interesting to almost think chronologically in terms of UK counterterrorism discourses and so on. Because in some ways that sounds more similar to the kind of discursive practices and discursive constructions that we saw particularly during the new Labour period, but kind of post 9-11 and the 2000s, that has then changed over the course of the 2010s. Those constructions of Muslims specifically as a suspect community and then transferring into something which discourses which attempt to be more inclusionary, which try and talk about the terrorist threat more widely. And then I think what's interesting again now and what I think in our conversation with Gordon and Dida, something that comes up is the way actually now in which terrorism and the, the so-called terrorist threat aren't really features of UK political discourse in the same way that they were even a few years ago. So now even recently after the killing of David Amos in a terrorist attack by a jihadist, the conversation was entirely about the sort of harms of online abuse, abuse of MPs, hate for online discourse, despite the fact that this particular terrorist actor didn't seem to have any special online presence. And so in some ways, not just the change in terms of talking about how jihadism is discussed, how Muslims are or aren't constructed as a threat, but this declining talking about terrorism within political discourse in the UK as a whole is something that seems quite different to what, as an outsider, seems to be the case in France and, you know, what we saw during the recent election debates and so on. Yeah, I agree with what you said. But also even like when you look further and the way they depict, for instance, far-right extremism is completely different from like Islamic terrorism, the way they depict it in political discourse. What I've came across with was how they will potentially politicize more the far-right extremism and like talk more about the mentality or the mental the mental illness of like the far-right extremist versus the Islamic terrorism or Islamic terrorist where they will clearly be depicted as monsters, as animals, dehumanized and depoliticize Islam. And I think there is clearly something in the discourse. Yeah, I think it's one area where actually the UK and the France are perhaps closer in terms of this kind of construction of far-right terrorism and far-right terrorist actors is that they are generally constructed more as 
isolated individuals rather than part of broader networks or movements when we know that actually that often isn't the case often they're very much embedded in broader movements online social interactions and so on and this kind of focus on perhaps individual vulnerabilities or individual characteristics rather than their kind of ideological beliefs and, and so on and in some ways I think that's potentially an interesting challenge within the UK as we see more potential issues around far extremism so for instance now in terms of the prevent referrals that get to the channel level so that is those prevent referrals that are then considered to actually pose a, some sort of threat the majority are now for far-right extremism there have been very significant number of prosecutions of really often quite young individuals, teenagers, for far-right, on far-right extremist or far-right terrorist charges, so plotting attacks and so on. But again, it's something that seems to not really have filtered through into the kind of general conversation. Whenever it does filter through into the general conversation is usually when there's actually an attack which is successful. And as you say, it's discussed more in terms of issues around mental health or around this specific individual. So perhaps that's an area where uh, the UK and France are converging more. Again, I'm not a specialized in far-right extremism. My research doesn't uh, look at that, and I think yours doesn't either. But it's, it's more a way of we can see it even in the media coverage, in political discourse. And I think that's what strikes me the most after Paris attack is this discourse on the enemy within and how the similarities was and were with the Algerian war when they depict the same enemy within our territory. And then when you look at far-right extremism, political discourse and media coverage is way more on their mental illness, lone wolf, and yeah, vulnerabilities, like you said. So Yeah, and then I guess linking that back down to us in my specific article, that was what I found interesting about those kind of accidental takfiris discursive practices was that they then seem to be moving towards trying once again to construct Salafi jihadists as an external threat as a almost more of a kind of foreign policy threat kind of people over there who then pose a, a threat to not just kind of British society as a whole but to British Muslims and the British Muslim community in particular and therefore constructing the British state as actually protecting British Muslims from these Salafi jihadists, others that are external. And again, I'm not an expert on the French case at all, but that that seems to me a kind of central distinction is that the UK has focused on treating Islamic extremism and jihadist terrorism as a kind of external threat to be dealt with through kind of foreign policy means, predominantly, whereas in the French case, it seems to be more about kind of an internal threat rather than something that's being located sort of in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, past Charlie Hebdo in January 2015, they actually depict it as an external threat. So something that it's, as they call, exogen, so outside, external, that they implemented the war on terror, the French war on terror, outside the French borders. Okay. But then when it happens to Paris attack, they shifted the discourse by saying they are French citizens, the enemy within that radicalized and that killed and threatened French citizens, French, and I put quotes, Republican values, the French way of life. 
And the way they depicted it, it was the enemy within. And then that's when they activated the emergency power within the French borders. While they were still doing a war on terror outside the French borders, yeah, outside the French territory, they were doing a so-called war on terror inside the borders, but through emergency powers. And that that is where we can see clearly that it targeted the French Muslim communities. So yeah, that's maybe the real distinction between UK and France is, or at least past Paris attack is this enemy within depiction. Yeah, I think, as you say, yeah, the UK you know, policies like prevent certainly historically did target British Muslim communities, but framed that targeting as actually being protecting British Muslim communities from an external threat. So as interesting, again, one of the examples that I talked about in the article Neil Coyle actually framed it as Islamophobic almost to criticise Prevent because for him, or in terms of his framing, Prevent was a policy that protected the British Muslim community from uh, the Salafi jihadist influences or recruiters or so on. Um, Yeah, that was a a very interesting conversation. Thank you for that. This conversation was fascinating. And again, follow us on, on Twitter, on our profile, to maybe know more about our research or even get in touch with us if if you want more details. Yeah, or if you know more about this than we do, which (laughs) you may well. We would like to thank our assistant producer, Irene Groenland. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast on Acast, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and all major podcast apps to get future episodes directly into your feed and take a look at the Centre for Global Security Challenges to find further cutting-edge research on today's topic. If you enjoyed this episode, then please remember to leave us a rating and review. Stay tuned. Our next episode will be coming out next month. Thanks for listening, and join us next time on Insecure, a security podcast. But until then, stay safe, stay secure. Bye for now. It was Harry and mine for the CGSC podcast. Insecure. A security podcast.